Well, as the kids are going out, I'm going to do something a little bit different, just for a moment. For the next few weeks, I'm going to preach a very, very short sermon before the sermon. And this is a little mini-series that I want to just shepherd us with, and this little mini-series is called How to Listen to Expository Sermons. Um, some of you uh, read the article that the elders sent out a couple of weeks ago. I won't ask for a show of hands on how many actually clicked on the link. But just in case you didn't, even though I know you all did, I want to talk about some little lessons on how to listen to expository sermons. And I'm just going to do one or two every week for a few weeks here. First, I want to give you a definition of an expository sermon. It is a message from a man of God, that's a technical term in Scripture for one called by God to proclaim his word, a message from a man of God which explains the Scriptures and applies the Scriptures to the glory of God and to produce Christ-likeness. That's what expository preaching is, a message from a man of God which explains the Scriptures and applies the Scriptures to the glory of God and to produce Christ-likeness. And so I want to give just two lessons today in no particular order. These are just things that have been on my heart because I'm realizing that expository preaching for some of you is a taste you have acquired and you understand it and you sort of get it. For others, it is an acquired taste and it takes time because this is not an exercise in being entertained. It is an exercise in engaging your heart and your mind. So two little lessons. First lesson is, Come with a disciple's attitude. Come with a disciple's attitude. The main word used for disciple in the New Testament, mathetes, it means a learner, somebody who takes in information. Satan has a thousand attitudes he would rather you come with. An attitude of judgmentalism, an attitude of condescension, an attitude of distraction, an attitude of dissatisfaction, an attitude of arrogance, an attitude of lack of longing to hear from God, an attitude, an attitude of lack of reverence for God. This is an ordained communication from God called a sermon. Instead, come with your mind ready to think and ready to reason and to wrestle with the scriptures. A sermon is not a movie. A movie disengages your mind, which is why it's such a bad medium for declaring truth. Because you sit back and you don't think, you just receive. The answers to the greatest questions in life are handed out to you routinely, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So listen with a disciple's attitude as a learner. I'm going to skip to the end of a sermon, and I want to give you a second tip or lesson. Don't waste the end of a message by checking out mentally. Don't waste the end of a message by checking out mentally. It was not uncommon in George Whitfield's day in the 18th century in America and in Europe for him to preach for two and three and four hours. And people could engage with that. Here, after 30 minutes in America, we're looking at our watches going, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. And, uh, how do I know that you've been disengaged at the end of a message? It's easy. There's a massive wave of closing Bibles and put away notebooks and switching positions and purses zipping and unzipping. What does that do? That distracts everyone around you. And in most cases, I can't speak for any other preacher. I can speak for myself. I spend a great deal of time working and praying over the last one minute that I have with you. Don't waste that time. What a... a, 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 an expository sermon is, is an argument. And I've been moving you toward 
a belief system based in Scripture, and hopefully a conclusion to that argument is the summation of everything that's been said. How would you like it if you were flying on a plane in the last five minutes, which is the part where you're landing, the pilot said, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go ahead and take a nap now for this part. You wouldn't want that. Don't check out. Sometimes I like to try to surprise you and just end so that I know that you couldn't check out. Listen. Listen like the men and women of Acts 2 who were so moved and cut to their hearts by Peter's sermon that they cried out, brothers, what shall we do? The conclusion for them was not a time to readjust their stuff and get ready to go and figure out where they eat lunch. The conclusion for them was, brothers, what shall we do? Those are tips numbers one and two. I hope to get to 10. Now, turn to Ephesians chapter six, if you will. We're doing a series right now, what you might call in the meantime messages. What do I mean by that? In the meantime, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses promised that a prophet was coming, that Israel called the prophet. It would be a prophet like Moses. And this would be, of course, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the whole book of Deuteronomy is about what do you do in the meantime? How do you obey the Lord? The book of Jeremiah, along with many other prophets, prophesies that Israel will be taken into captivity and that they will be oppressed, they will be afflicted, and then they'll eventually be released. But Jeremiah also says to them, what do you do in the meantime? Build houses, have sons, have daughters, live life. While I would love to simply proclaim the forward future, proclaim the second coming of Christ, proclaim heaven, and we want to do that all the time we can, we have things to do in the meantime. And Ephesians 4 verse 1 tells us what in the meantime it is, is to walk in the manner worthy. And then we get our list of all of what that means And one of those things that we do in the meantime is to parent for God's glory that one of the most holy and heavenly and eternal things you can do as a man, as a woman who is married and has children is to be a parent that glorifies the Lord. So this is a series of in the meantime messages. Now probably all of you have stories that you could tell of your parents frustrating you as children. And we all understand that. It could be something insignificant. I have a friend who grew up in a home where food was the answer to everything. That if something was uncomfortable emotionally, mama said, let's eat something. That's how we got through it. Or it could be as significant as a father or a mother who's dominated by rage and anger and rules the home as a place of fear rather than a place of love and refuge. Now, secular psychology would have us believe that the key to solving all of our current problems is to figure out how to blame our parents for everything, that that somehow makes it better. There's certainly value in not repeating the sinful patterns that we observed in our own homes. But overall, God simply calls us to obedience to the principles in his word right now at this moment, regardless of what's happened in our past. But I think it's notable to see as we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, what God does not tell parents. Sometimes what's missing is just as instructive as what's there. He doesn't say this. Hey, do whatever you want to your kids. They probably won't remember anyway. He doesn't say that. He does care about your relationship with your children and he knows that it sets a tone for the rest of your life. And he shows this to be a vital part of parenting them. And we see this in the next part of our our home-based text here of Ephesians 6. 
as we're looking at parenting for God's glory, so far we've done three principles. We've done the principle of heart motivation. That's Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We've done the principle of respectful submission. Ephesians 6, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. And we've done the principle of natural outcomes. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, today we want to examine the principle of gracious relationship. Gracious relationship, and we find this in the first part of verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, we've said this before, you can't guarantee outcomes. You can't determine how your children will ultimately respond to your parenting, but you can do your best to aim them in the correct direction, to be obedient to the Lord out of humble submission to him by parenting in the way that he has prescribed. And a major, vital, integral part of your parenting, and I would say, for me personally, I can't speak for you, but for me personally, the sweetest and the most rewarding part is the relationship. The relationships that you develop, that with the right care and by God's grace, it can be a relationship which literally blesses you for the rest of your life. And even though children have this horrible habit of growing up, I wish they wouldn't do that. You nurture something special with your children from the time they're newborns until the point where you, you have a real friend in your child. You have a friend and, and even a mentoring relationship with them. But even if we can't guarantee outcomes, we can do what the Lord says concerning our relationships with our children. And so from our text here, from Ephesians 6, 4, I want to just show you three ways to cultivate a gracious relationship with your children. Three ways to cultivate a gracious relationship with your children. I'll give them up up front to you here. First, be cautious of abuse of power. Be cautious of abuse of power, and we'll focus on fathers. Second, create an atmosphere of emotional safety. Create an atmosphere of emotional safety, and we'll focus on do not provoke to anger. And then third, treasure your children treasure your children and we'll focus on the phrase your children so be cautious of abuse of power create an atmosphere of emotional safety and treasure your children so let's look at the first way to cultivate a gracious relationship be cautious of abuse of power now you notice here that fathers are listed clearly the principle applies to to both parents and that word can be used and it is used at times in the new testament to speak of both parents The first half of verse 4 is what not to do. The second half is what to do. We're focusing on the what not to do part this morning. But the translators, almost across the board in every English translation, they choose to use the most normal translation, and that is fathers. This is not to get mothers off the hook, but if any parent is more likely to abuse their power, especially in Paul's day and culture, in which fathers had complete and total control over children with essentially no legal ramifications for any sort of treatment whatsoever. Paul's admonition is aimed at least, I think, in larger part to dads, the ones most likely to be cruel, the most likely to be harsh. And this, of course, is part of the curse. The curse of sin, God told Eve that her husband would rule over her. This isn't speaking of the, the rightful headship of the home. This is talking about a curse a tendency toward domineering and controlling and using power in a, in a wrong way. 
And where is this naturally going to extend? This is going to extend toward the children as well. They're even more helpless. They're even more physically vulnerable. Now, both the dad and the mom can abuse their power over child, over children. They can take advantage of the child's complete dependence on them. But women tend to be more naturally nurturing, more naturally caregivers, whereas a father most often has to make conscious choices to be tender, to be patient. And so fathers in particular need to keep a close eye on their tendency to dominate rather than to lead. Fathers don't dominate, lead. And I love the fact that the Apostle Paul is the one who tells us this because he actually gives us some insight into his heart, his father's heart. And I want to show you this. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you would, just for a minute, just a few pages over to your right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has been worried about this little tiny budding church in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas had planted this church and they received the gospel with such great eagerness and such joy, but they'd been ousted from the city just a few months into their, into their ministry. So Paul's concerned for them, and he sent Timothy to them to check on them. And Timothy comes back, and he says, this church is doing great. And Paul is so excited that he sends them a letter, and this is the letter we know as 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter of commendation of, of his fatherly pride, as it were, And in chapter 2, Paul reminds the church of the ministry he had with him just a couple of years earlier. And he characterizes his ministry as that of a father. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. He says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in the manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, Paul's purpose here is not to give an exposition on fatherhood. It's a metaphor for his ministry, but the metaphor still holds true. What is true of the reality is also true of the metaphor, and it's instructive on what the Apostle Paul in this inspired text defines as a loving father. And we get really just amazing insight into this divinely inspired attitude and strategy that he had with those spiritual children of his. And so Paul, as a spiritual father, he lists here three types of interactions he had with the church. Three interactions I think we could use as an example of a father who's loving and caring rather than abusive with power. His first interaction says he exhorted them. He exhorted them. This is a common New Testament word. It's used 109 times and it's variously translated exhort, urge, implore, beg. If you used a very wooden and maybe overly literal translation of this Greek word, It's the idea of call alongside. It's often used to speak of counseling, of advising. This is a friendly, I'm on your side interaction. It includes explanations, conversations. This is, you really ought to do this. But there's a second interaction. He charged them. He charged them. This is a stronger sense. This has more the idea of insisting, of imploring with even more determination. This isn't, you really ought to do this. This is, you need to do this. But right in the middle, and the one I want to draw to your attention is the third interaction, he encouraged them. He encouraged them. This is a word that means to console, to cheer up, to comfort This isn't you really ought to do this of exhorting them. This isn't you need to do this of charging them. This is, oh, I love you and I care for you and you can do this. You can do it. 
He did all of those. He exhorted them. He encouraged them. He charged them to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God. That was what his call to them was. And these are three distinctly different types of interactions. To urge, to comfort, to insist. And they're all so beautifully woven together as a, as a father ought to do. And they're all devoid. They don't have intimidation, overlording power, scare tactics, bullying, coercion. None of that. Yes, there is strength, but it's gentle strength. And fathers, I think probably most, if not all of us, have been guilty of just using power to get our kids to do what we want them to do. I'm bigger than you and you're going to do it or else. And that's it. It's the quick way to get something done. But if we're going to develop a gracious relationship with children, that gun's not going to fire for very long. Ultimately, the quick method of getting your point across will fall flat. Yes, there are times that it's appropriate to be stern with your children. That's why God made you bigger and gave you a low voice to intimidate your kids on occasion. We understand that and we get that. But it's in the context that, yes, they need to know and be afraid of you, but it's in the context of this loving and gracious relationship mixed with all these elements of drawing near to them and drawing them to yourself. Well, for all of us as parents, I have, I have good news. God has kind of paved the way. He's greased the skids, as it were, and he hardwired your children to accept you just as you are. He hardwired them to love you. Your kids don't care if you're ugly or if you're good looking. They don't care if you're smart or if you're not so smart. They don't care. You're my mom. You're my dad. And they're wired to believe that and to love that. They long for you. This is one of the great joys of being a parent, little ones who see you as the most important person on earth and they're pre-wired by God. Not just a relationship where you, you make the mistake of trying to be your child's best friend without actually insisting on righteous behavior, but a relationship that includes this loving, consistent correction as part of building and forming that relationship. It's a relationship of having the wisdom to move very slowly from rules over to relationship of eliciting their obedience because they're so convinced of your love for them. That's why it's so tragic when you of all people are the one who pushes them away emotionally by misusing power. It's crushing. It's devastating to a child. In my years of counseling with children who have been physically and sexually abused in horrible ways that I can't even describe from the pulpit, The most horrific part is not usually the abuse itself. The most horrific part for a child is the relationship they had with their abuser. Because more often than not, it's somebody that they were pre-wired to love. And so it crushes them. Now, you might not be doing horrible things to a child that are observable, but the dynamic you have between you and the child can do similar harm. That just because you have all the power doesn't mean you get to use all the power As a matter of fact, because you have the power, you have an obligation to be measured, to be intentional about not crushing and not devastating a child. By the way, children can't or they aren't allowed to verbally express how they're feeling. So how do they express it? They express it with sinful behaviors. Sometimes if your children are misbehaving over and over again and don't seem to be responding to your increased and elevated and escalated discipline, it might be that they're trying to send you another message that they need a relationship with you and not just discipline from you. 
And so listen to their behaviors. How children look up to you and how they long for and how they yearn for that relationship with you. They, they yearn for it. That great theological wellspring of country music can help us to understand. You're supposed to laugh right there because that's funny. But country music, like it or love it, hate it. I'm more in the hate it camp, to be honest with you. I don't say that in Bakersfield very easily, sorry. One of the things about country music is it does reflect realities of life. It's the folk singing of our day, which artists often write about what's important to them. It's no accident that many, many country songs have been written about fathers and their children. Some song titles speak for themselves. Tim McGraw's My Little Girl, simply a sentimental song about being the father of girls. George Strait's The Best Day, simply reliving memories from him and his son together. Craig Campbell's family man, that the reason a man works a job he doesn't like, does things he doesn't want to do, is for his family. Holly Dunn's Daddy's Hands, how her dad's hands delivered love, delivered provision, and delivered swats on the rear end when necessary. Reba McIntyre's The Greatest Man I Never Knew, telling dads, you need to tell your children you love them. And of course, many, many songs are written about mothers as well. Shenandoah's Mama Knows about the fact that mom has a sixth sense and knows when their children are up to something. Martina McBride's In My Daughter's Eyes about the character built into a daughter by her mother. I Owe You by Jimmy Dean about a mom giving her time and her heart and all she wants in return is love. And of course, making the very first Billboard country chart in 1944 was Al Dexter's song, about a strong mother who will protect her home turf at all costs, that moving tearjerker called pistol-packing mama. (laughs) Maybe not our greatest example there. Listen, for every one of you, and even for me right now, there are fewer words that evoke more emotion than dad or mom. And your children are wired this way. And of all the people on earth to crush a child's heart, oh, let it be anybody but you. Let it be anybody but you. Be cautious of abuse of power. There's a second way to cultivate a gracious relationship with your children. Create an atmosphere of emotional safety. Create an atmosphere of emotional safety. Turn back with me to Ephesians 6. We'll look at some other parts of Ephesians as well here in a moment. But Paul says, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke. We've talked about molding the heart motivation of a child, but this is a different focus. This is about knowing the heart of a child in terms of what it's like to be a child. And all of you have a good source. It's yourself to remember what it's like to be a child. But as adults, the tenderness of our hearts as children tends to fade over time and life hardens our hearts. So let's try to climb into the heart of a child. And scripture has already done this for us. The Apostle Paul comes to the rescue of the oppressed and the hopeless child by issuing this preemptive rebuke to parents to not provoke your children to anger. What does it mean to provoke them? It's a word that means to exasperate them, to to make them frustrated to the point of being angry. The parallel passage of Colossians 3.21 gives the reason. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does it mean to be discouraged? This is a word specifically that means to lose your passion, to lose your heart, to lose your motivation. That there's, I can't be good enough, I can't do enough. 
It means avoiding actions and words which break the spirit of a child, making him feel helpless and small. Excessive, severe discipline, unreasonable, harsh demands, arbitrary changing of rules on a whim, punishing children for rules that you didn't make them aware of, unfairness, constant negative nagging and condemnation without any positive uplifting, humiliating a child, name-calling to a child, being insensitive to individual needs. And a child can't take being crushed emotionally, to be so overcorrected that the child's in a constant state of paranoia. Your goal is to not create embittered children. To provoke a child is the idea of constantly picking at a child without acknowledging positive efforts. And many adults, and some of you have even shared with me during this series, that they are still living their whole lives trying to please mom and dad. I've talked with adults in their 70s and 80s with tears rolling down their eyes with a mom and dad who have been dead for decades saying, I'm still trying to make mom and dad happy. Children and parents are equal in worth. We just have different roles. Never forget that. Sir Robert Anderson, who was the head of the Criminal Intelligence Division at Scotland Yard in the late 19th century, He's a brilliant writer, and he used his detective abilities as a basis for very sound hermeneutics. He actually wrote a really good commentary on Daniel that is referenced by many, and I still use it. It's on my shelf. But he wrote numerous other books explaining scripture as well, simply using the detective's mind to exegete the text. And he wrote a book called The Entail of the Covenant, and he wrote concerning the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. Here's what he wrote. For the children, the only precept is obey your parents. Let parents see to it that they deserve obedience and more than this, that they make obedience easy. And he goes on to warn against parenting based solely on all the thou shalt nots for children. Now, what a great commentary. See to it that you deserve obedience, that you make obedience easy. Why is that? That's out of the outflow of warmth, out of the outflow of relationship. And children need that atmosphere of emotional safety. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs talks about this. It talks in terms that it's better to have a peaceful home where you don't have very much than a life of luxury where there is strife. Proverbs fifteen seventeen says, better is a dinner of herbs or vegetables where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. The lesson there is very simple, that a family atmosphere which is characterized by love, and it's a Hebrew word which simply means a state or a condition of strong affection for another based in relationship. A family atmosphere characterized by love is one that's warm and is safe and is inviting. And really, this admonition to fathers, to parents in general, but fathers in particular, to not provoke or frustrate, exasperate, to make hopeless, it makes much more sense when we put it in the context of everything that Paul has already exhorted in this whole second half of Ephesians. And I think this will make not provoking even easier to grasp. Let's see if we can build some context on what it means to not provoke in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the, the Apostle Paul gives these glorious doctrines of grace. And then he gives the natural outworking, what the results, what the outcome is of God's grace to save in the ways we reflect a life change through salvation. In fact, flip back with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's just walk through this. 
Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So putting not provoking into that context, a parent who's not provoking is instead acting in humility, meaning you don't view yourself as better or more important than your child, acting in gentleness, meaning you don't have to intimidate all the time, acting in patience, meaning you're not out to sanctify a child with one spanking of the century, you're patient, you're bearing with one another, it means you endure the trials and troubles of having a child just like they have to endure the trials and tribulations of of having parents who are sinful. We put it in the context of Ephesians 4.15. Look with me at this verse. Rather speaking the truth in what? Love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is at the head into Christ. That we're speaking the truth of the gospel, of sanctification, of of correction, in love with the goal of seeing our children grow up in Christ. We put not provoking in the context of verse 26 of chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Yes, sinful behavior angers us as parents. And by the way, it's okay to let your children know that you're angry. But it's tempered with quick correction and quick forgiveness such that the child never goes to bed one night ever wondering if dad or mom really love me. We put not provoking in the context of Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. In the correction of your children, are you insulting them and reviling them as human beings? Are you saying you're a slob instead of saying I would like for you to do a better job keeping your room clean? Are you being gracious with them? Are you cutting them some slack when grace and mercy is needed? We put not provoking in the context of verse 31 of chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Are you sending the message to a child that you don't even like him? Or are you communicating unconditional love? We put it in the context of the next verse, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Are you watchful that you don't develop bitterness and emotional separation from a child who's more challenging than others? Are you maintaining a tender heart? We put it in the context of chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Are you a fragrance of Christ? Or are you a stench of irritability and impatience? We put it in the context of Ephesians five twenty one, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you sin against your child, do you submit to that child's right to have you express that? Do you submit to that child's need to hear you repent? We put it in the context of Ephesians 5, 22 and 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, do you send the message to your children that you are really the head of the home? Do you berate and order your husband around? Do you provoke your husband by not listening to him and not honoring him? That creates an unstable environment at home. We put not provoking in the context of Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Husbands, do you send the message to your children that you're better than everyone else in the family, the most important one? Do you provoke your wife by not listening to her, not loving her, not serving her needs? That creates an unstable home. Now, in the context of all that the Apostle Paul has already called us to be as believers in reflection of the grace of God toward us, the command, fathers, do not provoke your children, that's just logical. That's just the the natural outworking of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another and speaking the truth in love and letting anger pass quickly, not reviling or insulting, communicating unconditional love, not allowing bitterness to dominate your heart, being a fragrance of Christ, submitting your righteousness, even if it means receiving respectful feedback from your children demonstrating love for Christ by being an obviously submissive and honoring wife, demonstrating love for Christ by being an obviously loving and caring husband so that by the time you get to Ephesians 6, 4, you wouldn't even think of provoking your children. You're no longer built to do it. You are in Christ and seeking to reflect him. There is a reason that the Apostle Paul puts family stuff near the end. Do all the other stuff and the family will come naturally. And when you're reflecting Christ, now you're creating an atmosphere of emotional safety and nurturing and love in your home. I told you we would make this as as practical as we can, so I want to give you a few ways that this concept works itself out in your home. First of all, express unconditional love. Express unconditional love. After discipline of any kind, always make sure that a child understands that you forgive him and love him and that the relationship is restored. There's a fabulous tool for doing this. It's called a hug. And that works. Here's another way to work out emotional safety. Avoid disproportionate punishments. Avoid disproportionate punishments. This has several bad effects. It frustrates a child into hopelessness. It makes a parent look mean and cruel. And honestly, parents, it backs you into a corner because you already fired all your ammo. When your teenager frustrates you and and you say, you're grounded till you're 50, well, what else are you going to take away? I mean, that's it. Here's a third way to work out emotional safety. Never let bitterness stay between you and your child. Never let bitterness stay between you and your child. Resolve and restore. Listen, your children don't have the bravery in most cases to come to you and say, Mom, I don't like the way you're treating me right now. Why will they not do that? Because you have all the power and they have none. And so you have to resolve and restore. Here's a fourth way. Avoid punishment-based parenting. Avoid punishment-based parenting. What I mean by that is that you never use positive rewards. That leads to angry kids. This is the classic situation of the guy who goes into the restaurant and he gets 10 $1 bills and he puts it on the table. And the waitress comes and he says, you see this stack of ones here? This represents your potential tip. And every time you mess up, I'm going to take one away. So you have 10 chances to get anything. What's she going to do? She's going to say, you're a jerk. I hate you. I'm not bringing you drinks. She's just going to work it all the way down. She might as well, because then she can do anything she wants. You know, every other area in life, we hope to receive some sort of recompense for our efforts. Did you know that even when we serve the Lord Jesus in the context of the church, we're promised reward for this? 1 Corinthians 3 says this. Yes, we serve the Lord out of love, but even God doesn't say the work is its own reward. 
Here's a fifth way to create emotional safety. Listen to your child's heart. Listen to your child's heart. Occasionally, you need to provide times for a child to express himself without fear of retribution. You might be surprised at the good information you get, and it opens your relationship to a more real level where there's actual real give and take. Here's another way to create emotional safety. Remember the destructive power of belittling a child. Remember the destructive power of belittling a child. If you belittle a child, he will remember it for the rest of his life. At least let him remember that you also repented and that you did so in the way that you would do with an adult. Here's one more way. Remember that children want respect as much as you do. Children want respect as much as you do. The difference is is they don't have a platform to ask for it. They are human beings made in the image of God. They are equal in worth, equal in value to you. You just have different roles. Don't humiliate a child. Discipline in private. Thank him for obeying. They're human beings and they will remember being disrespected. So be cautious of abuse of power. Fathers, create an atmosphere of emotional safety. Do not provoke. Let's do one more way to cultivate a gracious relationship. Treasure your children. Treasure your children. Paul calls them your children, not your burdens, not your enemies, not your problems, not your inconveniences, not your responsibilities. They're your children. And you might think that parents automatically treasure children. From my observation and experience, that's not the case. And we know from Scripture that it's not the case. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't need to give this instruction. Now, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself as a dad. But if I had a rewind button that I could go back and take a thousand more opportunities to treasure my kids, to just stop and say, time out, give me a hug. To just stop and say, do you know you are the greatest evidence of God's blessing in my life? Oh, if we had the opportunity to do that, we all would. To just stop and express love and thankfulness Listen to our, how our Father cherishes and treasures those who love Him. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. He's a father who shows compassion. And this is a rich word in Hebrew. The basic meaning of the word is, is to be soft. It's to be soothing. It's to show genuine emotion and cherishing toward another. It includes ideas of, of mercy and kindness. But this particular word, it has an action that goes with it, that epitomizes it, that embodies the spirit of the word compassion. The action is it means to greet or meet somebody with love. That when that person walks into the room, you're delighted and you're thrilled and you express it. You treasure that person spontaneously. Have you ever had the experience of making eye contact with someone and before they can help it, their face falls at the sight of you? That's very discouraging. That person's thoughts automatically, when they saw me, all of the negative thoughts they've been having came to the forefront and their face betrayed them. That's sad. How many wives and husbands have told each other, I just wish you looked mildly happy to see me when you greet me? How you greet someone tells the story of how you were thinking about them. And so our Heavenly Father, He greets us in love, as it were. 
Some parents are guilty of only thinking their children are perfect little angels who can do no wrong. We'll address that hilarious fantasy next week. But other parents can mentally and spiritually be deceived into allowing themselves to be inwardly hypercritical. And this becomes ingrained. It becomes a habit that you no longer even see and it carries on into your your kid's adulthood such that the child knows that he's not treasured ultimately and he ultimately will pull away and move on without you. Let me give you four ways to treasure your children. We could spend all day on this, but I just want to do four. Physical affection. Physical affection. Scripture is filled with examples of physical affection. Greet one another with a holy, what? Kiss. You notice it wasn't a holy wave. It's physical affection. Now, I've already spoken about physical affection, and I'm reiterating this on purpose. There's numbers of studies in the past decades that have shown that that children with affectionate parents tend overall to be more well-adjusted, less anxious, have fewer behavioral problems, and be more confident. As one example, Duke University Medical School did a long-range study of 500 people from the time they were infants to the time they were adults in their 30s. That's called a long, longitudinal study. What they did was they observed mothers with eight-month-old infants, and they were observed with their babies. The mothers were categorized on levels of affection. 9% of the mothers showed what the researchers called low levels of affection. 85% were in what they defined as the normal range. And 6% were in the range of what they called extravagant or caressing affection. 30 years later, that same 6% were the least likely to have major anxiety problems and were the most likely to have reasonably healthy relationships and successful marriages and families all because of physical affection. Another way to treasure your children, play time together. Play time together. Play is the work of children. It's how they develop. It's not just idle foolishness. It's how they express themselves. It's how they practice real life scenarios, how they dream and cultivate direction in life. Uh, Children dream about big things. You don't ever see a six-year-old saying, I'm pretending to go to the nursing home. They don't say that. They say, I'm pretending to be an astronaut. I'm pretending to do this. Play is how they develop. Play is absolutely fundamental to the maturation of children. And it's interesting that that's how God made them. That fun builds them up and teaches them. When I was a kid, don't judge me for this, please. When I was a kid, one of my favorite TV shows was a show called MASH. Anybody remember that show? Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. I didn't find out until later it's what's called a dark comedy with liberal tendencies. But it was funny at the time. But one of my favorite characters was the young company clerk named Radar. And Radar was the country boy from the farm who was the surprise to his parents when he was born when his father was around 60. And in one episode, Radar is talking about growing up with an older father and he says, sadly, the first time we played peekaboo, he had a stroke. He wanted to play with his dad and it just wasn't working out. Listen, for small children, play is their world. It's where they live. And if you will get into their world, they're more likely to get into your world. And playtime, it changes over time. But fun is still a time to cherish them. This is why God made men to partly stay little boys. Amen, ladies, right? That's why they stay little boys because it leads to family and to play and to fun. 
Listen, if you're intent on being a godly parent, you want to train your child in the word of God and train him in the ways of the Lord, but you don't want to get into his world, you're missing out on treasuring him. Here's a third way to treasure your children, spiritual time together. Spiritual time together. Some call it family worship, singing, reading the Bible, praying. Make it a practice to end every day in prayer if you can. Make that a practice. Talk about sermons. Talk about Sunday school. Talk about what you're reading do those things. Make the family organically centered on your faith in Christ. And maybe that includes some appropriate vulnerability. How are you growing in your faith? It's healthy and it's good for children to hear that their parents are working at sanctification, not just expressing their own sanctification and needing kids to be sanctified. It doesn't always have to be formal. It doesn't have to be planned super well. It doesn't even have to go that well. Just treasure your children by making sure that your faith is a natural part of the conversation. I'll give you one more way to communicate, or rather to treasure your children. Fourth one, communicate that you're proud of your children. Communicate that you're proud of your children. What is it that we as Christians aim for? What is our entire goal? It is to hear those words, well done, by our Heavenly Father. Isaac and Rebecca were both guilty of not cherishing their children as individuals. Rebecca had the twins, Jacob and Esau. Rebecca was proud of Jacob because he was the sensitive child. And Isaac was proud of Esau because he was the manly child. And the division led to family chaos. It led to disaster. If your child is artistic and thoughtful and sees the world through color and creativity, then don't try to make him into an engineer. And if your child is mathematical and brainy, then support and encourage that and don't try and make him into an artist. I think one of the true joys in parenting is discovering and loving and supporting every individual child and treasuring them for who they are and celebrating this. You, you might have a child who becomes a surgeon and his brother becomes a grocery store clerk. Okay, that's all right. You celebrate both. So how do you provide your best effort at gracious relationship? Be cautious of abuse of power. Create an atmosphere of emotional safety and treasure your children. I mentioned Psalm 103 earlier, and it really draws our thoughts higher than just our families. This is a in-the-meantime message, but I think we need to look ahead as well. Psalm 103 draws our thoughts to the original father, to the one after whom parenthood is modeled. And I'd just like to read a few verses from Psalm 103. Just listen, you don't have to turn there. Because this poignantly, poignantly describes the heart of the Lord to those who would love him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Your father in heaven, he knows that you're helpless. He knows you need forgiveness. He knows that you're weak and that you can't stand in his wrath and survive. He knows that very shortly you're going to be blown away in the winds of time by your own death. He knows your own sin which separates you from him. And so God who would be the father to all who would receive him by faith, provided a way for you to be his child, for you to be cherished and treasured by him. He sent and he sacrificed his own son to satisfy his own rightful wrath against your sins so that he could hang up the robe of judge and instead put on the mantle of father to accomplish a gracious relationship with you. By the way, the theological term is reconciliation. He provided payment for sin and open arms into what? Into the family of God. When you're tempted not to provide that gracious relationship with your children, remember what's been provided to you. Never forget. Our Father, we come to you now thanking you for Christ and preparing our hearts for the Lord's table. It is incumbent upon us, according to 1 Corinthians 11, to prepare, to forgive, to be conscious of our own forgiveness. Lord, may it be that not a single person here today would receive the Lord's table with an ounce of unforgiveness in their heart. May it be that even this day, as we do this very solemn act, this very solemn symbol, of the body and blood of Christ, of partaking, Lord, in his death, as it were. I pray that we would come with humility. pray we would come with attitudes of absolute gratitude and thankfulness to you. We give you thanks for Christ. We give you thanks for the cross. It is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.